You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout, the museum's historian. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers, coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the International Spy Museum. Delighted to have you here on this glorious day. Uh, I'm Peter Ernest. I'm the executive director, and I am delighted to be here to introduce a former colleague. Uh, All of you probably know much more about Cuba than I do. Uh, One of my last positions at the agency after a career in operations, covert operations, was I was director of media relations and often had to deal with the press and people coming in and inquiring about Cuba. And there was only one go-to guy, Brian Littell. They said, oh, go ask Brian, go ask Brian. So he was, at the agency, Mr. Cuba. Uh, He was there 35 years, and from 90 to 94, he functioned as the national intelligence officer for Cuba. So that that, that is the official designation of the go-to guy, make him the national intelligence officer. Uh, Brian also headed up the uh, Center for the Study of Intelligence, which includes the people who produce studies in intelligence, uh, periodically issued as unclassified uh, booklets, and also includes the history staff. Uh, he is currently the senior research associate at the Institute for Cuba and Cuban American Studies at the University of Miami and does a monthly column on Cuba, and teaches as an adjunct professor. He also taught Latin America and American foreign policy at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown for 26 years as an adjunct professor, which is interesting to me because um, there weren't that many CIA analysts uh, and others who really functioned as adjunct professors. I think you must have been one of the first. Now there are all sorts of people out there who uh, graduated from CIA and went to those kinds of positions. He lectures frequently, writes extensively, and has frequently advised the U.S. and other governments on Cuban affairs. Uh, his, a book, his previous book was After Fidel, which we have copies of, and of course the latest one is Castro's Secrets, the CIA and Cuba's Intelligence Machine. As an operations officer at CIA, Uh, There were periodic stories about the Cubans, uh, that they were very, very good, and uh, that they had had East German training. And uh, the thing was, very seldom did we get facts. 
And I think one of the fascinating things to me about Brian's book is because of his unique access, in other words, the knowledge he brought to bear and talking to people who were defectors, um, that gives it a credibility which certainly uh, I wasn't getting him when I was there. It was simply the rumor mill. Uh, he also was the co-editor of Eye in the Sky, which is a history of the Corona Reconnaissance Satellite Program. So Brian is broad-gauged, but for me, he will always be Mr. Cuba. I, I think when I knew you went to Miami, I thought it's finally come to this. He's going to run for office. Okay, Brian, it's great to have you here. So please help me welcome Brian Littell. And Peter's right. If, it sure helps if you're Cuban and if you're running for office in Miami. But uh, I'm not. I'm not Cuban. I'm not Cuban-American. I'm not Latin-American. I'm, I'm, as, as I tell my friends in Miami, I'm a pure gringo. It's good to be here. Thank you all for coming. I, uh, I'm very pleased to be here again to talk about this new book, Castro's Secrets. It, uh, it, was, it took a while to get this book done. I worked on it for about five years, and it... Uh, it's the result, in a, to a considerable degree, of uh, interviews, recorded interviews I, that I did with uh, the most important defector ever to leave Cuban intelligence. His name is Florentino Aspiaga, and Aspiaga now lives with a new identity under the equivalent of the uh, Witness Protection Program. The Cuban, the Cuban government tried to kill him twice. They, they ran one, one operation in London, came very close, very, very close. To, uh, to killing him. It was, uh, it was just a vengeance uh, uh, operation because what he told us when he defected was just so damaging to Cuban intelligence, to Fidel Castro personally, and for Cuban national security interests. Um, I interviewed a number of other defectors from Cuban intelligence and security services. Uh, these, uh, these defectors, some of, them are, uh, some of them are in the book in their true names, and others, others are not. Others are uh, are disguised because they're also they're also very worried about their own personal security. The the, the long arm of Cuban intelligence uh, reaches uh, reaches into many American cities. I spent many hours at at the National Archives. I read probably forty to fifty thousand pages of declassified CIA documents. And, uh, and other, other national, uh, national intelligence documents. But most of them were CIA documents that were declassified uh, under, under some duress when the Congress passed the JFK Records uh, Act. I, that, that's not the exact name. But in 1992, legislation was passed. Bill Clinton signed it into law. And it required American government agencies to declassify any document that could be found in their, in their archives that in any way could be construed to have been related to the Kennedy assassination. And, uh, I, and the CIA labored uh, over about a half million pages of, of documents that, uh, that are now at the National Archives. And I, I reviewed quite a few, as I said, a few, a few, a few dozen thousand pages of those CIA documents. It all led me to uh, it all led me to Castro's secrets, and I want to start basically by telling you about uh, about Cuba's supreme spymaster, 
we all think of spy masters, Richard Helms and Bill Colby and George Tenet, and we think of George Bush, former president, who was CIA, spy, CIA director and spy master. We think of, uh, we think of Andropov, in this, in the KGB leader, who later became uh, the, 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 the leader, the, prime, the first secretary of the Soviet Communist Party. We think of Vladimir Putin today, a former KGB officer running the Soviet Union with an iron hand. The world's most accomplished spymaster was someone else entirely. And I gave a talk down in North Carolina a few weeks ago, and the title of the talk was History's Greatest Spymaster. It was Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro personally ran Cuban intelligence for close to five decades. Fidel Castro was in power from 1959 until 2006 when he gave authority over to his brother Raul, who still governs Cuba. But during all of those 48 years when Fidel was in charge in Cuba, when he was premier and prime minister, when he was president, when he was commander-in-chief of the Cuban Armed Forces, when he, when he was doing all kinds of strutting and uh, performing on the international stage, the role, the capacity that Fidel coveted most dearly was his leadership role of Cuban intelligence. He assigned other men to be the heads of the DGI, the, Cuba, the General Directorate of Intelligence. It's now called the DI, the Directorate of Intelligence. He assigned other men to, uh, to be, the, uh, to be the, 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 you know, the token leaders, in effect, of those services. But it was Fidel Castro himself who ran Cuban intelligence. Uh, he, ran it, uh, he ran it as a micromanager because there was nothing else, there was no other leadership role that he enjoyed performing as much. And I want to tell you about some of the things that he did because uh, they're little known. They're, in, they're all in the book, but I'd like to tell you about them because some of them are so dramatic. And these, are, these are stories, truths, realities that Florentino Aspiaga, the, uh, the defector I mentioned, shared with me during many, many hours of recorded interviews. These interviews were in 2007 and 2008, and previously when Aspiaga defected in 1987, he, of course, shared all of these same secrets with CIA and FBI debriefers. And all of it was, I guess, remained classified until I was able to talk to Aspiaga and got clearance from CIA to publish this book. Aspiaga told us about, um, about a super mole that Cuban intelligence ran. I call, I call this person, it was a man, a super mole, who worked at a very high level of the American government, uh, mostly during the Reagan years and maybe even earlier. He was, uh, he was probably at the sub-cabinet level, that high level. He may have worked actually at CIA or at the Pentagon. He, uh, I don't know his name, and he's never been apprehended, never been prosecuted, and I'll tell you why. Because the Cuban tradecraft in how they ran this super mole was so perfect that, uh, that to this day, I think only two men know his identity. Other than, the, other than the super mole himself, if he's still alive, only two men in Cuba know his identity. Fidel Castro and the Cuban case officer that Fidel selected to meet clandestinely with the American. The American would travel to third countries, uh, Canada, Mexico, let's say, the Cuban case officer, with his instructions from, directly from Fidel, would travel 
there and meet and debrief the American, go back to Cuba, and he would not, he would not report to the head of the intelligence service. He would not head to the, report to the head of the interior ministry. He would go straight to Fidel's offices, and he would tell Fidel what the American spy uh, wanted Fidel to know. And then Fidel would provide more requirements, and then the whole cycle would continue. This man was Fidel Castro's personal mole at a very high level of the American government. Never apprehended, never prosecuted. He might still be walking the streets. Um, the, Cubans, uh, the Cubans, according to Aspiaga, had uh, at least two members of the House of Representatives who spied, who were agents for Cuba. They had a, um, they had a number of illegals, uh, Cubans with identities as other nationalities, living, uh, living in various parts of the United States. Two of them were living in, in California, I suppose, in Silicon Valley. I don't know their identities. I'm not sure they were ever, ever apprehended either. The Cubans were, became very good at illegal operations. There was a professor, a, uh, a woman, at a university on the East Coast, and uh, she became enamored of the Cuban Revolution. She just thought that Fidel and the Cuban Revolution were about as good as it could get, and she hated American policy toward Cuba. So she became, she was recruited by Cuban intelligence, and she worked as, a, uh, as an agent of influence. And she, primarily she worked on her students. She wanted them to share her beliefs, her love of the Cuban Revolution, her hatred of American policy. And uh, she did that very well. She, she was an agent of influence. She was very successful. Um, but she was also an access agent, and they used her very skillfully. They wanted her to help, rec help recruit someone else. So she began working on one of her students, a, a very bright young man of Latin American background. And she began working on him and gradually got him to the point where he shared her beliefs about Cuba. And when she thought he was ready, after all of the priming that she did, she traveled with him to a third country, friendly to Cuba. She turned him over to her Cuban case officer. The Cuban case officer completed the recruitment. This young man, an American citizen, was, uh, was recruited by Cuban intelligence. And he was probably trained by Cuban intelligence in how to defeat the polygraph, the lie detector machine. Because Cuban intelligence is very good at that. They're, they're better, far better than the Soviet KGB ever was. The Cubans, the Cubans have a real skill at defeating the polygraph machine. This young man uh, was given his assignment by his Cuban intelligence handlers. Apply for a job at the CIA. Aspiaga, when he defected, was able to prevent that from happening. The young man never got into the CIA because Aspiaga knew enough about the case, about the professor, the young man. It was, it was possible for the FBI and the CIA to, uh, to identify him, and uh, he never got the job. But it was quite, a, quite an operation. Aspiaga is a, has been a source of absolutely infallible, unimpeachable reliability through all the years since he defected in 1987. The stories that I've told you so far have all been verifiable. Um, and um, there are many, many other things that he told us that, uh, that are acutely embarrassing for the CIA. There were double agents, Cubans, 
who were double agents. They were recruited by the CIA over the years, in the 70s and 80s. Some of them may have gone back even to the 60s. These were Cubans who, um, official, Cubans, some of them, most of them are Cuban officials in one capacity or another. They were recruited as spies by agency case officers. They were put on the CIA payroll. Almost all of them received, uh, received remuneration. Some of, them, uh, some of them were given fairly sophisticated clandestine communications equipment. And they, they were supposed to use that in Cuba for communicating clandestinely with their CIA handlers. Um, these agents actually worked for Fidel. They were double agents. Most of them were dangles. They were dangled before the CIA as kind of very attractive bait. They were recruited, but they were working for Fidel the whole time. I'm very embarrassed to tell you how many there were. There were 49 or 50 of them. Nearly every single agent that the CIA had recruited to work against Cuba was actually working for Fidel Castro. And Fidel Castro, the supreme spy master, he was personally involved in most of these cases. He, was the, he selected the feed, that the disinformation that they provided the CIA. He selected, he, he selected some of them himself, and he approved, he approved of almost all of them as they were recruited by Cuban intelligence. Fidel is so involved, or was until he retired a few years ago, he was so involved in Cuban intelligence activities that there was nothing he loved more than meeting with um, his most stellar spies spying on America. I worked with one of them. Um, her, this was not one that Aspiaga revealed because Ana Montes began working for Cuba around 1987, the same year that Aspiaga defected. So he didn't know about her. But Ana Montes worked for Cuban intelligence for 16 years, uh, the, most of those years at the Defense Intelligence Agency at the Pentagon. And I worked with her. I sat across tables with her. We, sat, uh, we worked together on national intelligence estimates. I thought we worked together. She was working for Fidel, not for, not for American intelligence. She met with Fidel on one of her trips to Cuba. She met with Fidel, and I'm sure that what he did was he encouraged her and congratulated her and thrilled her with, her, with his presence. And, uh, and she's now serving a prison sentence that's not long enough. 25 years, I think, and she's about 10 years into it. There was a spy that was recruited by Cuban intelligence who worked at uh, the State Department's intelligence bureau, Walter Kendall Myers. And Kendall Myers and his wife, who also tried to spy for Fidel, uh, they also had a meeting, a very pleasant, encouraging meeting with Fidel in Havana. And Kendall, Walter Kendall Myers talked about it later after he, was, uh, after he was arrested, and he said, oh, it was such a wonderful experience meeting with Fidel because he just, he just lionized, he revered Fidel Castro. There was an English woman uh, who spied for Fidel, and she met with him, apparently. Uh, she, according to another source that I quote in the book, she did terrible, terrible damage to American interests. Um, so all of these things, all of these things tie directly in to Fidel himself, the spy master. Aspiaga told me many, many other things. Um, 
the most remarkable thing he told me that is really the, 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 the single item that gets the most media attention from, from this book, Castro's Secrets, <clears throat> the, single most, the single most startling, shocking thing that he told me was about the morning of November 22, 1963. Aspiaga was a very young, a very young intelligence officer in 1963. He, uh, he was working at a communications intercept site near Havana. And his assignment had been a singular assignment until that morning. All he was supposed to do was listen in on CIA intercept and listen in on CIA secret communications. <clears throat> the CIA had an enormous, enormous station in Miami. It was called JM Wave. JM Wave was the largest CIA station that had existed anywhere until that time. There were hundreds of, uh, of CIA officers and probably a few thousand uh, co contract agents, Cubans. JM Wave uh, ran the uh, third largest navy in the Caribbean, and that navy had one purpose, to run operations against the island. The, um, they were, they'd ran saboteurs, it ran uh, infiltration operations, it, uh, it, ran, uh, it ran spies in and out. Uh, and um, this was what Aspiaga's mission was, to catch the CIA ships with infiltrators and saboteurs, you know, red-handed, so that Cuban security could go out and, and, uh, and apprehend the, the infiltrators, the saboteurs, the spies. He was also assigned to listen in on JM wave communications, and if, if he could get anything out of Langley, to try to, to try to intercept out of Langley. That was his assignment until the morning of November 22nd, 1963. He got a call from his headquarters, and headquarters said, stop all of your work against the CIA. It's not your priority now. Focus all of your equipment on Texas. You all know what happened in Dallas that morning. John F. Kennedy was assassinated. I said to Aspiaga, what do you mean? What time was this? What time were these, did you get these orders? Kennedy was killed at 12.30 Central Time. I said, so it would have been 1.30 Havana time and Miami time. I said, what time did you get these orders? He said it was about 9.30 in the morning. And I said, are you sure? How can you be sure of this? And uh, I thought, that, could this be an exaggeration? Could this be a fabrication? And it was after he told me this that I decided, uh, in our first meeting, I decided that I, I really had to devote some serious energy to investigating this, uh, uh, this report. <clears throat> and that's how this book resulted. I believe that Florentino Aspiaga was telling me the truth. I asked him repeatedly to go through the story time and time again. I have it all on tape. I'll be donating the tapes uh, to Stanford University someday whenever, I'm, whenever I don't need them anymore. But uh, I'm convinced that he remembered it accurately and that he was telling the truth. Uh, there was never any question about his bona fides among the CIA and FBI debriefers who debriefed him uh, after his defection in 1987 and for some time after that. There was never any doubt about his bona fides, that he told the truth, that he never exaggerated. 
A very senior CIA officer who worked very closely with him after Aspiaga's defection told me, he said, Brian, and this is, I quote him in the book, I don't name him, but I quote him, he said, Brian, if, if Aspiaga had been a Soviet defector, it, he would have been the best defector that American intelligence ever had up until that time. That's how reliable he was considered. So when he told me this thing about, about that morning of November 22nd, 63, I felt, I just, I've just got to go into this further. Could it be that he was exaggerating? Could it be that he was fabricating? Even though there was no record of him having done that with anything else he told us. Um, on the first morning when we met, Aspiaga, I had not known him before, by the way. I had not known him at the time of his defection or afterwards. I had not ever met him until our meetings in 2007 and 8. In that first meeting, Aspiaga handed me a, a box of, uh, of a manuscript. It was about a 300-page uh, uh, typewritten manuscript. It was mostly a memoir. He wrote a memoir. He, he began writing it a couple of years after his defection. He wrote it in Spanish, and he gave me an English translation of it. Uh, and he said, this is, this is my own memoir of my, ex my most important experiences. So I put it aside and continued to meet with him. But that night after he left, uh, I met him in a, in a secure location that I arranged. But that night after he left, I rushed to the manuscript. And I began to leaf through it. And I thought, if this story about Texas is not in the manuscript that he wrote a couple of years after he defected, Maybe it's something that he invented after, after years later, after he, you know, was maybe in, maybe in some kind of contact with uh, with the Cuban exile community. But it was in the manuscript. It was in the manuscript with almost exactly the same language that he uh, that he shared with me in 2007 and 2008. And then I thought, well, maybe maybe it's a bad translation because I, he gave me an English translation of the manuscript. Well, I did some digging and some working, and through a variety of contacts, I was able to acquire a copy of the original Spanish language that manuscript that he wrote. And my Spanish is good enough that I, when I read it, there it was, there it was, the same, the same description uh, in Spanish, and it had exactly the same meaning. So I thought, what, uh, what else can I do? To try to, uh, to try to get to the bottom of this. I couldn't find any other source who would corroborate or repeat what Aspiaga told me. Uh, I said to him, have, how many people have you told about this? And he said, I've hardly ever told anyone. I've been, I never told anyone in Cuba. He was too afraid that if it got back to Fidel that he was aware of this, that, uh, that he would be assassinated. So I, I dug. And eventually I found four other sources that, to me, convincingly prove that Fidel Castro has been lying, publicly lying, since the Kennedy assassination about what he and Cuban intelligence knew, in, previously knew, about Lee Harvey Oswald. Castro said in a speech, a day, I think it was a day after Kennedy's assassination. He went, on, he went public, he delivered a long speech, and he said, we knew nothing about this man. And then he delivered another speech a couple of days later. It's all, it's all elaborated in the book and detailed in the book. And in the second speech, he said the same thing. He said, we knew nothing about him. We, we, did, not know much, we did not know anything about his, uh, his visit to the Cuban embassy in Mexico City 
in late September 1963. Oswald went to the Cuban embassy in Mexico City in September, late September, 1st of October 1963. He was a walk-in. In, in, in the, in the intelligence uh, tradecraft language, he was a walk-in. He walked into the Cuban embassy hoping to defect to Cuba. His wife, Marina, the Russian girl uh, he married in Minsk, that's what she said. She told the Warren Commission he intended to remain, to go to Cuba and remain there. And that's what the Warren Commission concluded as well. They, they found, they believed her and they, they said in their report that that was his intention. It was to go to Cuba and stay there. He had been enamored of Cuba and of Fidel, like that American professor I told you about. Oswald had been totally enamored of Cuba. It began with his Marine Corps days, uh, when, he was, uh, when he was just a, a very young Marine Corps uh, volunteer. He had loved the Cuban Revolution. He had loved the Cuban Revolution and Castro even before he defected to the Soviet Union, stayed for about two years and came back. When he was in California at the El Toro Marine Corps base, Oswald, um, Oswald had a friend a young man, Puerto Rican man named Nelson Delgado, and Delgado testified at great length to the Warren Commission. And Delgado, there's no, question, there's no reason to question Delgado's uh, uh, reliability, his truthfulness. He told about how he and Oswald had fantasized repeatedly about volunteering to fight as guerrillas for Fidel. This was just before Fidel's guerrilla victory at the end of 1958. And Oswald and this Delgado fantasized openly about going to Cuba and fighting for Uncle Fidel. And this was the kind of language that Oswald continued to use repeatedly up until, up until his own death. Um, I, found, I found at the National Archives a telltap conversation. Uh, it's not something that I discovered. It's been, it's been out there. It's been available to other researchers for, for a number of years, for maybe eight or ten years. But I don't think anyone ever made the connection, connected the dots the way I, the way I did, and I think, I think reliably, I think correctly. There was a conversation between two intelligence officers and Cuban intelligence officers in Mexico City hours after Kennedy's death. One of them was a woman. Luisa Calderon, who figures very prominently in the book. She's, she was a young, very attractive uh, Cuban intelligence officer in Mexico City. And she got a call from someone in Havana. And I presume that it was a, a Cuban intelligence officer, since that's what she was. And this Cuban in Havana said to her, you know, this was, this was before anything really much at all was, uh, was known about Oswald. It was after he was arrested, but before there was very much book on Oswald. And this intelligence officer in Havana, recorded in this, this tell-tap by the CIA, he said to her, you know, he actually volunteered to fight for Fidel as a guerrilla. Now, there was no way that that could have been known, except that Cuban intelligence had already f compiled a file on Oswald as early as 1959. There was, there was no way they could have known that. Um, so that's one item of evidence that Fidel lied. If they had a file on Oswald since 1959, then why was Fidel telling the world we knew nothing about him in 1963? Um, there was a, um, a, a defector from Cuba who came out in April of 1964. This is the second item of evidence that, that I cite in the book that I, th I think to demonstrably prove that Fidel was lying about what was known of Oswald in Cuba. This defector, uh, his name was uh, Vladimir Rodriguez. 
Uh, he came out, he was the first defector. He came out in April of 1964. He got off an Arab Cuban airplane in Halifax and was soon in the hands of CIA debriefers. He told the CIA over the course of about a year of debriefings, he told the CIA, Oswald was in touch with Cuban intelligence before, during, and after his visit to Mexico City. So if he was in touch with Cuban intelligence before Mexico City, September 63, it might have referred to those, to those volunteers, that, the volunteering that he was interested in doing. Delgado, who I mentioned, told the Warren Commission that he believed Oswald had, admitted, had been in touch in Los Angeles with Cuban, with Cuban officials. And that's all in the Warren Commission report as well. So you got Delgado and uh, you got the Teltap op operation from, from the CIA that has obviously been declassified. You can find it at the National Archives. Uh, there's, there's this uh, defector uh, who, uh, who and, and the, the remarkable thing about Vladimir Rodriguez, the defector from April 64, is that his entire CIA file has been declassified, probably thousands of pages, and I went through most of them. Uh, I don't think there's ever been a defector from a communist country whose just about the entire CIA file on the defector is now on the public record. Uh, and I found some remarkable things in, in the Rodriguez files. Why was his file completely or nearly completely declassified? It was because he served briefly at the Cuban center, the intelligence center in Mexico City, not long after Oswald's visit. And that's why he was able to say what he did to the CIA, that Oswald had been in touch with Cuban intelligence before, during, and after his visit to Mexico City, because Rodriguez knew the, C the Cuban intelligence personnel in Mexico City, and he knew the senior personnel in Havana. Um, there's a third item of what I consider to be evidence that connects a lot of the dots here about Fidel's lies, and that is one of Fidel's own senior intelligence officers, a man named Mirabal. Mirabal was the incoming DGI intelligence chief, the center chief in Mexico City when Oswald visited. Mirabal, years later, was asked by the House of Representatives Assassinations Committee to, uh, to testify, and he did. And he testified, I think he, I think he just kind of lost his place. He, he kind of got confused, or he didn't remember what Fidel had said about Oswald. He didn't remember what the official Cuban position was about Oswald, because he told the Congressional Committee that yes, indeed, during and after Oswald's visit to the, to the Cuban Intelligence Center in Mexico, he, Mirabal, had indeed filed a report back to Cuban intelligence headquarters. So, of course, there can be no, I don't think there can be any doubt, since you have one of Fidel's own senior intelligence officers contradicting Fidel. Now, there's one more item, and a lot of you know Operation Solo, uh, a very, very famous, successful FBI spy, spy espionage operation. Um, operation Solo was centered on Morris and Jack Childs, Chicago communists. Uh, 
um, emigres as children from the Soviet Union. Uh, they, um, they were very, Morris especially, rose to a very, very senior position in the American Communist Party. In fact, he was so respected by Gus Hall and by the leadership of the American and other communist parties that he became, in effect, the Secretary of State, the Foreign Minister of the American Communist Party. And in that capacity, he traveled frequently to Moscow to meet with the Soviet leadership, uh, to Beijing, to Eastern European communist capitals, to Havana. And Jack, his younger brother, was part of the family spy operation, Operation Solo. And there's, there's plenty of literature about it. There's a book down in the library here in the bookstore by John Barron about Operation Solo. And it's about as, that's, a, that's about as good as you can get on Operation Solo. I went to the, uh, I wasn't sure about that, though. Uh, I, I poured over Barron's book, but I wasn't sure that that was everything, so I went to the Hoover archives at Stanford University where Barron's papers are and where, where Morris Child's papers are. And I had hoped to find some additional information. I did. I found some, I found some nuggets uh, that went beyond what, uh, what's in the Barron book. And all of that that I found is in my book. But I want to tell you what Jack Childs told the FBI. Jack went to Cuba, and he met with Fidel in May of 1964. So that's some months after the Kennedy assassination. And he meets with Fidel who completely trusted him because Jack and Morris were completely trusted by the KGB leadership, by, by the top members of the Soviet Politburo, who in fact had recommended Jack to Castro. Jack had met, uh, Castro had met Morris in, in, in uh, Moscow. So Jack and Fidel are sitting down and they're, they're conversing. And uh, Fidel, this is May of 1964, some months after the assassination in Dallas. And Castro, Castro uh, says to Jack, what do you think about the Kennedy assassination? And they talked about it a bit. Uh, and Fidel said, you know, when Oswald left our embassy, our consulate in Havana, you know what he did? He screamed at our people, I'm going to kill Kennedy. Now, Fidel denies that he ever said that. Um, but I've talked to FBI officers who knew the child's operation, Operation Solo, knew, knew Jack, and these FBI, retired FBI officers tell me he never exaggerated. He was very flamboyant. Uh, he was a real risk-taker, and I described some of his uh, stories, his risk-taking stories. But Jack did not invent. He did not fabricate. Jack was a reliable source. Jack is deceased, and Morris is deceased. Uh, but uh, there's, there's, there's really no reason to believe, given the entire history of Operation Solo, there's, and there's no reason to believe that Jack got that wrong. Fidel said, when Oswald left our embassy, he shouted, I'm going to kill Kennedy. Now, this is the same Fidel Castro who denied any knowledge of Oswald. So when I discovered all of these things, I thought, okay, uh, I, don't have, I don't have an absolute smoking gun. I, I, don't have, I don't have a second corroborating source for what Aspiaga told me. And there are other explanations for what, As what Aspiaga was told to do that morning. There are other explanations. I, I recognize that, and I describe those in the book. There could have been, there could have been other reasons that, that the, the Cuban intelligence headquarters wanted him to, to focus on Texas that morning. But As Aspiaga is convinced 
that Fidel knew. And I kept asking him, what do you make of this? He said, there's only one interpretation. Fidel knew. Fidel knew that shots were going to be fired at Kennedy that morning. I said, do you think that Fidel had anything to do with Oswald and the rifle and the shooting that morning? He said, no, I can't say that. He said, I'm a professional intelligence officer, and I cannot say that because I don't have any evidence of that. He said, but all I can tell you is what I've told you. Fidel knew, and I asked him repeatedly, and every time the story was the same. Now, this is as far as I can go, and I don't, I don't allege either in the book, I can't, I can't allege that Fidel had a hand in the Kennedy assassination, a direct hand, but Cuban intelligence might have, because Oswald met with Cuban intelligence officers in Mexico City. He was determined to defect to Cuba. By then, by then Oswald probably knew from reading the New Orleans Times Picayune, he probably had read in September, September 9th, 1963, it was just a couple of weeks before he, Oswald went to Mexico. Oswald probably read in the Times Picayune of Fidel's threats against the Kennedy brothers. Fidel spoke to a, an American reporter in Havana on September 7th, and he was quoted as saying, if the Kennedy brothers don't stop what they're doing and trying to do against my life, theirs will also be in danger. Fidel does not deny that he said that. He was later, in, later interviewed about this, and he did not deny he said it. He said, but it was not a threat. He said, it was a warning. I just wanted to alert the Kennedy administration that I knew of their plots to assassinate me. Now, I have a great deal in the book about the most, the most developed and the most serious of those CIA Kennedy administration assassination plots against Castro. I, I, it, there, there's a long story in the book about it, and I don't know if I have time. I probably don't have time to tell you. Do I, Peter? Do I have time? They'll kill me if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> some, some, some well, um, the, um, the CIA, the chief of the CIA operations against Cuba was a man named Desmond Fitzgerald. A very, very elegant Brahmin socialite from Boston and Park Avenue and later here in Georgetown. He was distantly related to the Kennedys from their mother's side, the Fitzgerald side. This was Desmond Fitzgerald. He, uh, he was close enough to Bobby Kennedy that when Bobby came down for Jack's inauguration here that, uh, that Bobby stayed at Des's house in Washington, uh, in Georgetown. Des was the chief, very, very high-level CIA officer. I mean, he was the equivalent of a three- or four-star general uh, in, in the civilian service. And uh, he was very close to Dick Helms. He, was, he knew Jack Kennedy, but he was particularly close to Bobby. Uh, Des, uh, Des ran, for about three years, ran all clandestine operations against Castro. And there is no question, based on testimonies, sworn testimonies by CIA, at least one CIA officer, that, a, the, the, well, by several CIA officers. There's no question that the, the objective, the ultimate objective of this operation that Des Fitzgerald ran was to 
was to rid Cuba of Fidel Castro, to get rid of Fidel Castro. And one CIA officer who was intimately involved was asked by, uh, under oath, did that mean killing him? And he said, oh, yes, of course it meant killing him. We had, we, there were operations to kill him. So Des Fitzgerald, uh, who came up with all kinds of plots and schemes, many of them crazy, to assassinate Castro, he was right in the middle of it. Des went into the office one morning, uh, and he told his staff, look, I came up with a great idea this morning. Let's, uh, let's take advantage of the fact that Fidel Castro loves to be a scuba diver. Let's devise a really beautiful seashell with a bomb in it and plant it in the waters somewhere on the north coast of Cuba where we think Fidel might go scuba diving. And when he goes down, he sees it, he'll pick it up, and it'll blow up in his face. And his staff said, my God, Des, that's crazy. That's crazy. Even if you could, even if you could rig up something like that, you know, it, it would never work. Well, he, he was talked out of it. Then, undeterred, Des came up with another idea. Let's, let's contaminate a, uh, a wetsuit, a diver's wetsuit, with some kind, of, some kind of disease in the inside. Let's coat the inside of it. When he puts it on, it'll, you know, it'll make him really sick, and maybe he'll die. Dick Helms testified under oath about this, and so did a couple of other CIA officers. But let me tell you about the most serious of all the plots against Castro's life. The, um, the plot involved only four men in CIA, and I think pretty sure, I'm pretty sure of Bobby Kennedy. The, uh, there were only four men in CIA, possibly a fifth who knew something about it, but only four who were fully briefed in on this, uh, on this assassination plot. It was Des Fitzgerald, the chief of the operations, and a man named Nestor Sanchez. Uh, I interviewed Nestor before he died a couple of years ago. Nestor was, was a Spanish-speaking, fluent Spanish-speaking case officer, uh, very distinguished, very respected in the agency, and Nestor was brought into uh, this, this operation uh, that, uh, that had its ultimate objective of killing Castro. Nestor denied that under oath, and he denied it when, when I interviewed him, but the evidence, the evidence doesn't support him. Um, Nestor was meeting, Nestor, Nestor worked with a Cuban, a Cuban who was recruited uh, as an agent. His CIA agent name, was, his uh, uh, cryptonym was A.M. Lash, Am Lash. His name, his true name is Rolando Cubella. I speak of him in the present tense. He's alive, he's living in Miami in Spain, and I interviewed him in Miami. This is the man who was selected by the CIA to be the most promising uh, assassin to get Fidel. He was a promising prospect because Kubella was because uh, he was already a proven murderer. He had assassinated a colonel from the Batista regime in a Havana nightclub a couple of years before Castro's victory, and this, this colonel had been assassinated in cold blood, and a couple of other people with him were wounded in the attack, and Kubella was the man who did it. He was a proven assassin. He could do it. He had fought. He was a proven warrior. He had fought with Fidel in the mountains in 58, 57, and 58, and Kubella was proud of that. He showed me, when I met him in Miami, he showed me a scar that runs all the way down from his shoulder down his bicep. 
a scar that, was, that he earned, so to speak, during the Revolutionary War against Batista. He, was, he had the highest rank in the Cuban uh, guerrilla movement and armed forces after victory. He was a comandante. He was close to the Castro brothers. He had a house that he used on the beach right next door to the house that Fidel often used for vacations. The CIA couldn't believe its good fortune that they had this man in, it, in their sights, that he was recruited. Now, his name, now he was under the cryptonym Am Lash. Uh, and he was the prospect, the best prospect they ever had to assassinate Castro. Des Fitzgerald wanted to be sure himself. Des took a mighty big risk. And some of, his, some of the wiser hands uh, in operations, Ted Shackley and others, advised, advised Des, don't do it, don't go. But Des decided anyway to go to Paris. He went to a safe house in Paris. Nestor Sanchez was with him as tr interpreter. And together they met with Rolando Kubela. And do you know what Des told Kubela? He said, I am Bobby Kennedy's, the Attorney General's personal representative. And I'm here to discuss with you our, your utility to us. I asked Kubela when I, when, I, when, I, when I interviewed him. I said, why did you? Did you want to speak to Bobby Kennedy? Was that the idea? Or to his representative? And he said, yes, I wanted to talk to Bobby Kennedy himself. I said, why? He said, well, I knew. I knew that Bobby Kennedy was, uh, was the man who was behind all of the covert operations against Cuba. I knew the CIA was carrying them out, but I knew that it was Bobby Kennedy who was the driving force behind it all. So I wanted to talk to the man who was, I considered to be really in charge. And I asked to talk to Bobby Kennedy, but this other guy came and was his, his personal representative. And I was satisfied that he was, in fact, the personal representative of the Attorney General of the United States. So now, uh, now Rolando Cubella knows not only that the CIA is plotting against Castro's life, but he knows that Bobby Kennedy is as well. And it wasn't a big leap to assume that uh, if Bobby was, Jack was. November 22nd, 1963, back to that date. Nestor Sanchez is meeting in a Paris safe house, the same one, I think. He's in a Paris safe house, and he's with Rolando Cubella. Peter, let me borrow your pen. He's, uh, he's, in, he's in this uh, safe house. Nestor Sanchez, Rolando Cubella, the two of, both of them I interviewed, as I said. And Sanchez uh, had flown to Paris with the assassination weapon in his pocket, in the suit pocket that he wore on the plane. The assassination device was not ready until shortly before Sanchez had to leave to make, to make this meeting with uh, Cubella in Paris. They met, they met in a wonderful, very nice upscale neighborhood not far from Versailles. Um, Sanchez is talking to, it's, it's in the evening, it's after dark, uh, and uh, Sanchez is explaining, they're talking, I presume they're talking about the assassination of Castro. And finally Sanchez gets to the point, I have, I have the weapon for you to use. Cabela had requested an assassination weapon. It wasn't just volunteered by the CIA. Cabela had requested an assassination weapon. Sanchez reaches in, you know what I'm doing. Sanchez reaches into his pocket, and he pulls out a papermate pen. And he shows Cabela, when you click, an ink cartridge does not come out, a syringe comes out. 
You fill the syringe with a poison, a deadly poison. And the next time you see Fidel, maybe on the beach or maybe at, that, uh, maybe at, the, uh, at the resort where you both have week- take weekends, just scratch him lightly. The, the, the syringe has a very, very fine pointed needle. It's so fine that Fidel might not even feel the scratch. And that there's a very good chance it'll be lethal. The evening of November 22nd, 1963, this conversation takes place in Paris in this safe house. The phone rings. It's a CIA safe house. So Sanchez answers the phone. It's a controlled facility. He answers the phone. It's Des Fitzgerald. Des tells him, the president has just been assassinated. Call off the operation. Fidel knew, because I suppose many of you have already come to the conclusion that I explain quite elaborately in the book, I have hard evidence Kubela was a double agent working all along for Fidel. He got his instructions from Fidel. He was reporting back to Fidel everything about Bobby Kennedy and Des Fitzgerald and Nestor Sanchez. Uh, He was a double agent from the start. I found evidence at the National Archives that pretty convincingly points to that. Uh, Documentary evidence that I don't think any researcher had ever discovered before. And one of my defector sources in Miami, this, this one in Miami, who is in true name in the book, this defector told me that he actually saw documents in Havana about Kubela's role as a double agent working all along for Fidel Castro. Now, that's really my story. You, you really, you, I hope you'll buy the book anyway, even though I've told you, I've told you so, much of the, so much of the best stuff of the book. But um, I, I'm glad you came, and I, I'd be happy to take questions. Any questions? In the back. Thanks very much for a very interesting talk. A question for you about why people spy for Cuba. Now, in the 30s and 40s, when there were lots of Americans and other Westerners who spied for the Soviet Union, it's sort of well understood why they did that. Capitalism wasn't looking too good. We didn't know much about the communist system in the Soviet Union, and the communists uh, stood against Hitler. So there are all sorts of good explanations why the Soviets had so many spies. In more recent times, why do so many Americans seem to want to spy for Cuba? What are they imagining? What's, what, what do they see there? Or is it because it's clearly not all just for money, as you've as you've indicated? Yeah, I, I I do explain in the book. I guess I guess he's read it. Uh, is it Mark? Mark, I guess has read the book. The uh, the Cuban intelligence service, unlike uh, unlike KGB, CIA, uh, current you know many other uh, intelligence agencies, they really don't pay their spies. They, their spies work for them for the love, for the love of the effort and the love of the Cuban Revolution. Anamonta's got just, you know, pocket change. Kendall Myers, too. I don't think any of the others got, uh, got anything. They, they're, they're, they're not big salaries for the Cuban spies. The answer, I, actually, I, I, I do get at that in the last, in the, the, the afterword of the book, the, the last chapter. And the reasons, the reasons that people spied for Cuba... Uh, in, in over these last 30 or 40 years are essentially the same 
as why people like Alger Hiss and others uh, spot uh, the Rosenbergs and, and so many others spied for the Soviet Union. It was for the love of, of, an, of what they thought, of the false ideal, of the, of the romanticism, of the, of the, of the dictatorship that, uh, that they l believed and they revered. And, uh, and that's why some, a number of Cuban-Americans also spy for, uh, for the Cuban Revolution. It really was for almost all the same reasons. We, the KGB and the GRU were so successful, especially in the 30s and 40s, uh, and the Cubans have been successful uh, most of the last few decades for essentially all the same reasons. Uh, I had a question, too, uh, Brian. I had mentioned in my introduction that, you know, we always uh, had this understanding in the agency, uh, those of us not directly involved in Cuban affairs, that the Cubans had benefited greatly from training by the East Germans. Um, I, I'd just be interested in your comment whether that in fact was true or did the Cubans have sort of a native ability to do this and they were well, service of the revolution? The, their first mentors and tutors were KGB. Aspiaga and other defectors uh, have, uh, you know, have laid that out. The, the, the defector I mentioned, Rodriguez, who came out in 64, he, he, he spoke about the KGB team that was there. And he was the first, the earliest of the defectors. The KGB did a lot for the Cubans. They trained them in how to run illegal operations, how to do double agent ops, how to, uh, uh, you know, how to, how to do uh, special, uh, what do they call them, medidas activas, active measures. Uh, the KGB taught them a lot. It was in later years, Peter, yes, the, the, the East German uh, agencies, Stasi and others, uh, did a lot of work with the Cubans. Marcus Wolf, the great, uh, the great uh, uh, odious East German spymaster, maybe second to Fidel as modern, mod, the greatest spymaster of modern times. Maybe Marcus Wolf was second to Fidel. Marcus Wolf wrote uh, Man Without a Face, I think, was his book. And he wrote about uh, his trips to Cuba. So yeah, the East Germans gave the Cubans a lot of help. So did we. So did the CIA. Inadvertently, they, the Cubans acquired all kinds of really sophisticated clandestine communications equipment from us. I mentioned that. They, they, they learned from our tradecraft and the best of it they emulated and improved on in some cases. And Peter, you're right. I think they have a natural ability. There's something in Cuban culture. There's a natural inclination to conspiracy and clandestine, uh, clandestine uh, conniving. It's not, I, I think it's kind of largely un-American but it's very, it's very Cuban. Um, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. Um, of our recruitments that we had thought, CIA, that were of Cuban agents, were any of them Cuban intelligence officers? And so, Which ones now? Of the... Um, the doubles? Yes. The, 40, and, 50, the 4950 doubles. Right. None of those were Cuban intelligence officers, no. And so that would be, I guess, in retrospect, suspect. Fidel didn't want to dangle any, any intelligence officers because the kind of information they would be expected to give would have to touch on operations of the Cuban intelligence service. It was so, too risky. He did not, Fidel, as I told you, I, Fidel personally approved or selected mm -hmm. all 50. Uh, there were no Cuban intelligence officers or foreign service officers, foreign ministry officers. 
Because obviously, if you're if you're a double agent and you're providing information r- routinely, repeatedly to the CIA, it can't all be invented. You've got to you've got to provide some decent, honest, accurate feed, or or you know your bona fides are going to be blown pretty soon. So Fidel didn't want anybody from intelligence or foreign relations providing accurate, truthful information, with along with the disinformation. So yes, you're right. So would it be safe to say then that? Um I imagine CIA attempted to recruit Cuban intelligence and counterintelligence officers and probably never succeeded with a recruitment. I, uh, I can tell you, you're, you're really challenging my memory here, and I'm on, I'm, I'm on slippery ground too. <clears throat> Up until a certain point, and it's in the book, no, there had not been a recruitment of a CIA. Of a, of a Cuban intelligence officer. If there has been one since, I, can't, I really can't say. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings, and thanks for listening. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.